Hi there, and welcome to another edition of the 1% Better Podcast with your host, Rob O'Donoghue. All right, guys. Hi, welcome to another episode of the 1% Better Podcast. And in this one, I am actually in a studio uh, on location. I, I say sometimes I'm in my own studio, but it's not really a studio. It's just a room in my house with a couple of uh, microphones. But in a different type of studio, I'm in a photography studio with john murray john welcome to the show thanks very much for having me thank you for uh putting me up in in your fine location this morning oh, you're uh, very welcome we just hope the rain doesn't come through the roof and the or the music doesn't start playing downstairs again but we won't, we won't go into the details on that one um no great to connect i think like a few other guests i've connected with it was uh samantha kelly probably brought us somehow together through the the magic of social media yeah samantha's brilliant um i've had a lot of people who connected with me through kind of in a roundabout way because of samantha or because i shot with samantha and Mm. um so she really is the tweeting goddess you know she certainly is and she's great at connecting people so so no it's very good so there's a few things i wanted to touch on today um talk about your journey you're a, a headshot photographer now but i don't think you were always that so it'd be good to kind of step back in time a little bit um but also talk about your experience in the world you're in now i know you've worked with effectively the world's best headshot photographer and peter hurley would that be fair to say yeah that's it um in 2014 i was working with canon and sandisk memory devices and i got the great opportunity to to work with Peter Hurley and to train with Peter Hurley. Um, so that happened in the summer of 2014 and my life changed, I suppose. Okay. Um, my view on the world and my view on people changed. And cool. It was, a, it was a, a turning point in my life, I suppose. Excellent. I'm looking forward to hearing it. I love turning points and, and what kind of what ingredients happened and were mixed together to make that happen. The other part I'm interested in is your involvement with Pep Partner. I am a pep partner. I'm, uh, it's Pep Talk is or Pep Talk HQ at Pep Talk HQ on social media. Um, pep Talk is a workplace wellness company, and they focus on areas like financial wellness. Um, it's mindset training as well, and they also focus on fitness and nutrition. So the four pillars of what they do are fitness, nutrition, mindset, and financial. The whole lot encompassed together means that people are fit to work Mm -hmm. and they're fit and healthy to go home as well so you have to have that work-life balance and that sense of of balance and equilibrium so if you're stressed out because of stuff going on at home Mm -hmm. you're not going to be able to focus in work and if you're stressed out about the stuff that's going on in work you're not going to be able to focus at home Mm -hmm. and a lot of people now there's massive problems with obesity at the moment and if you're able to make little small, they call it a pep step, one pep step at a time. If you make one exactly the same as your 1% better, mm-hmm. you're changing one thing, one after the other, small little steps. Yeah. And in having a better diet, mm-hmm. being physically more active, it means that when you go home after a long day of work, you're not exhausted and you're able to play with your kids. Yeah. Um, and when you go into work then, you're just in better form. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's, 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 it's just one of those things that it gets into a positive cycle mm. and it continues that way as long as you make it continue that way. Yeah. So Pep Talk go in and they do different workshops with people. They do exercise workshops. A lot of it's fun. They have a mm. joint Jenga game. Right. Um, 
they build the bricks up and then pull them back down again. Right. And a lot of what I do for them then would be the same along the mindset area. Mm. So it's psychotology. So it's merging the photography and psychology. Mm. So we're using parts of cognitive behavioral therapy, um, mindfulness. Mm-hmm. And then I talk to them and I shoot their headshots as well at the same time. So mm. engaging with them and showing them what they actually look like to the rest of the world. Yeah. Um, so just putting a positive spin on photographs rather than a negative one. Yeah. And that's interesting. I'd like to maybe ask a couple of questions around that because, you know, in the world we're in now with everybody taking selfies of each other and maybe the level of self-awareness or self-consciousness of oh am i taking the the best view of myself or they see their friends looking way better it can almost put them into a negative mind space that sort of thing yeah the selfie thing is different it's see when i walk behind my camera i'm in control Mm. it's me who's in control and that's what makes people feel uncomfortable in a lot of ways um the difference i've actually shot a friend a good few years ago and he's a chef big lad john and he told me he had PAS. I said, what's that? And he says, picture avoidance syndrome. <laughs> I kind of laughed. And I one. think everybody has it to a point. Yeah. But when I stand behind my camera, look, I say, I have, I have control and I'm in control of what happens there. Um, and that can make people feel uncomfortable. But that PAS barrier is already broken down when they take their phone out of their pocket because they've made a decision to take that selfie. Mm-hmm. That And the selfie camera is 14 mil wide. So it's it's quite wide. The ears will disappear off the side of your head almost. Right. It's, it's quite distorted. So it gives people a jawline. They're able to put it in the position that they want it. And it's because it's a selfie camera, it's mirrored. So what the camera is actually seeing is mirrored and put onto the screen. So... One thing that I teach people a lot is that when you see yourself in the mirror, you think you look like that and you don't. Mm-hmm. You are the only person in the whole world who sees that image. Right. So that's the same as when you look at a selfie on a screen. It's actually showing you what you see in the mirror, which right. is wrong. Okay. So the whole world is looking at you. And that's, there's something strange in that image, you know. Um, and the reason it does that, I suppose, is that when we see ourselves in a photograph, generally it's the wrong way around. So we feel uncomfortable looking at it because your brain is trying to decipher why you don't look like the person in the mirror. Right. And there's always one thing on your face that you go to in every single photograph and you assign blame to that for you not looking like the person in the mirror. Mm. And we kind of, again, assign blame to that for making us feel uncomfortable. That one thing on your face. Now, my face is all messed up. I was talking for a charity there a while back and um, I remember pointing out to Vivian um, my fiance that there's all sorts of stuff going on in my face you know I have a bent nose a bump on the side of my nose I'm a boy you know fell off my bike plenty of times I have a heavy right eyelid one ear is lower than the other they're pretty big and I have a massive chunk missing off the right ear um, that she never saw for like six I'm years studying your face now in a strange <laughs> sort of way sorry about that but I can't I'm sitting it. here all quasi-modoed <laughs> up um, but yeah I have a massive chunk missing off my right ear and she never saw it for six years and she sleeps on that side of the bed right what we actually communicate with the face is shape so we understand everything based on shape hmm. letters are shapes numbers are shapes words themselves are shapes um, and that's how the human brain works is that we understand based on shape we're constantly looking at shapes um, and decide from what they mean so when you look at a face a human face in about 0.3 of a second what you're doing is you're deciphering how the eyebrows the lower eyelids and the corners of the mouth interact with each other Mm. and that gives away the facial expression and the emotional state of the person that you're looking at Um, so I went on a mad rant there didn't I Uh, (laughs) this is perfect it's all good keep Um, going yeah so (laughs) 
she never saw the fact that I had a chunk missing off my ear uh. in all that time. So these are, and the only thing I see in photographs is one side of my lip hangs down very slightly, even though of all the other stuff going on. And we don't see that in anybody else. We don't see the flaws in anybody else. Mm. We don't see what the other person sees. Like I have hundreds and hundreds of people standing in front of my camera since January this year. And, you know, they're telling me that they have, oh, I hate my face. I hate my nose. Like, oh, I hate that photograph of myself. There's yeah. nothing more I want to hear after taking a photograph of somebody than, Jesus, that's an awful photograph. You know, yeah, yeah. It's, it, it's, it's great for the ego. Keeps you grounded and balanced. But what they're actually looking at is one thing on their face that explains why they don't look like the person in the mirror. And they're blaming that on them feeling uncomfortable. And the problem is never that thing on their face. It's the fact that their facial expression is disingenuous. Right. So they have, they're pulling the sister-in-law smile, mm. which starts in the muscles just under your cheekbones. Whereas a genuine smile starts a lot higher over your ears. Peter Hurley calls it a squinch. Um, Tyra Banks calls it a smize. I ref- I hate that word smize it's like something for Billy Barry kids not that there's anything wrong with Billy Barry kids Um, but it's actually called a Duchenne smile and it's named after a French neuroscientist Mm. who in the 1850s decided he was going to see what would happen if he electrocuted people in the face to see what muscles would work Um, it's kind of something you'd only get away with in France you wouldn't get away with in Ireland let's electrocute your face and see what happens funny that you electrocuted my face and you were the one with the black eye you know Um, so it's it's, it's called a Duchenne smile a genuine smile when you smile above the cheekbones right you're making me very self-conscious now. Of kind of I'm sitting here staring at your face. Smiles <laughs> like so, yeah. Go on, oh, I'm genuinely laughing. Go on. Yeah, <laughs> sitting here studying everything that's gone on with your face. But um, yeah, so we understand genuine facial expressions and we respond to genuine facial expressions. That's why when you see a photograph that's emotive, you will respond to that photograph and mm-hmm. it's your brain trying to respond to a person in front of you, even though it's a flat photograph. Because technology gave us cameras and technology gave us laptops and technology gave us print. And human psychoevolution hasn't happened that fast. Mm-hmm. So there are parts of your brain that when you do see a photograph still thinks a person is in front of you, a physical person. And you respond in the exact same way you would if they were standing in front of you. Mm. So you can look at a photograph that makes you feel sad or you can look at a photograph that makes you feel happy. I have a whole laughing section on my website and people tell me it's hilarious all the time. Mm. They go through the photographs and just sit there giggling to themselves. But what they're actually doing is, they are laughing at a photograph, Mm -hmm. but what they're doing is they're responding to a physical, the the physical presence of emotion. Mm. So we have a physiological loop that when you meet somebody and they smile at you, you will respond with the same smile. Mm -hmm. And it's social convention that you do, but the reason we do that and how we do that is that when we read that smile on their face, we're looking at their eyebrows, their lower eyelids and how the corners of the mouth are inflected upwards and you can't see your own face. It's just not possible. Not yet. We haven't, we haven't, we haven't done that with the eyelids yet, but, um, the only way you know you're giving them an appropriate smile is to physically feel it. So, mm-hmm. When you squeeze your lower eyelids, or what's called the medial cantal tendon, you activate the limbic node in your brain and you release serotonin and dopamine into your bloodstream and you Mm -hmm. feel elated, you physically Mm -hmm. feel happy. Mm -hmm. So when you squeeze your lower eyelids, you're smiling at somebody. 
So you're smiling because you feel good. And when you, you, when you feel good, you smile. And it's a cycle. And it's a, it's a physiological loop. So mm-hmm. the muscles of the face are responding to the hormone levels. And the hormone levels are responding to the muscles of the face. Hmm. I, I want to get more into this psychology <laughs> of all of this because it's fascinating. Through that, we'll probably be sharing some tips and ideas that people can take on board. What, what came up for me there is when I started this whole journey to podcasting and was never at the start comfortable listening to my own voice back, never mind looking at my own face. Um, now I don't hear the voice anymore effectively. I, I hear the sounds around the voice and how I can make the sound improve and yeah. the clipping and the kind of puckering of lips and the stuff that I can't somehow stop doing. But even in the last 12 months and I do a little bit more video for the podcast and whatnot, I'm becoming less caring of my face as well, if yeah, that makes yeah. sense. It's like, oh uh, yeah, like I kind of now know what I look like and I don't really care as much. It's when I have actually another, I'm doing it not for showing my face, I'm doing it to get a message across my face, just happens to be in it, yeah. if you know what I mean. Do you find yourself or people over time, they just get comfortable with their own face or did they, did they start saying, okay, well that is a line I have and I'm aware of it now and it, it's okay. Does that, make any sense through the headshot sessions or just in general in general yeah yeah we're brilliant as kids we kiss mirrors and stuff you know we're, when we're small we're like if it's the only way to equate it is is like an hourglass you're amazing when you're a child if you walk into a room full of four-year-olds and ask them who's the strongest mm. every hand in the room is going to go up but if you ask that same group when they're seven or eight they're going to be able to tell you who the funny guy is and who the bully is and who you know who the, who is the strongest and who's the fastest um, and when we get older, again, as, you know, when we're wrinklies and geriatrics and we're a bit mad, everybody says, oh, you know, she's just a bit eccentric or he's just a bit mental. Um, and it's not that. It's it's the fact that we just genuinely don't care. It's the the bit in the middle that's the problem. It's that we're, we're trying to conform to society around us and what mm. we think society wants us to be. So... I talk a lot about the gap, this self-acceptance gap, a gap between how you see yourself and what you think the rest of the world expects you to look like mm-hmm. and a gap between who you feel you are as opposed to what you believe the rest of the world wants you to be. And that happens in our teens and, you know, in, in your your kind of early adult life um, up until the, the kind of late 40s, I suppose. And at different then, levels, at different rates, I would imagine. Some yeah, people get there faster than others, right? So yeah, and it's, never get there. it depends on the person themselves. I've, you know, people in my family who are quite elderly and they would still be quite self-conscious, mm. like image conscious and stuff like that. Um, So that sense of society intruding is, is still there. But generally... I don't think there is no age, you know, it depends on the person. But what's happening is to cause that is that your prefrontal cortex, the neocortex, the the thinking part of your brain, the bit that looks like a walnut, mm-hmm. is responding on a subconscious level to negativity. It's it's responding to this idea that you're going to have a negative response to a photograph once you, once you see it. Mm. And what you're describing with yourself is that it becomes habit. It goes into the basilar ganglia, the back of the brain, and that's the bit that's, you know, it, it's just force of habit. You're used to it. Mm. You become desensitized to it. Um, there's a whole deep session about that, but it's 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 all about how the kind of neuroreceptors are, are taken and responding to, to stress hormones. And so 
at first when people see themselves in photographs, it's it's quite negative. Over headshot sessions, I'm constantly showing them the screen and I'm explaining different things about muscles of the face and posture and how we posture and how we read images and how we read each other. And I'm encouraging them to do things in order to see that. Mm. So stage by stage, we go through, okay, so you're looking at your face and you have these big eyes because you're holding them open because mm. you don't want to blink in front of the lights. Yeah, yeah. But you wouldn't sit next to that on a bus, so you shouldn't be doing it in a photograph because it's mm. frozen and it's going to stay there. Yeah. Um, so they're responding to the fact that they look negative, they look uncomfortable, um, and they feel uncomfortable because of that. And it, like I was saying earlier, we're responding when we look at an image to a facial expression mm. as if it was a real person standing in front of us. So as we go along through the session, what happens is that they stop looking at that one thing on their face they don't like. Mm. And they start looking at their posture, how they're carrying themselves, what their face is doing. And lots of times people will be, oh, I have to do that. Look, look, the way I'm standing there is brilliant. Um, I need to go back in because my me, me face isn't right. Like my eyes aren't right or my mouth's not right or I'm not doing, you yeah. know. And they stop critiquing the things that they think everybody else has seen, that nobody else has seen. So like my mouth thing, I was the same. You know, I was looking at myself in photographs. I was going, Jesus, my mouth, like. And it's the tiniest of things. Yeah. Like it's it's a millimeter at most yeah, yeah, yeah. of a difference. But to be honest, everybody has two different shaped eyes. Everybody's nostrils are different size. Mm. Nobody's nose is perfectly straight. Your ears are never on the same level. And your mouth's never, ever straight in anybody. So, you know, I'm just the same as everybody else. And it's, it's just how we're, we're made up. Like, you know, I've... I've shot a guy, he's on the cover of my squinch book and he's on my website and he's a few other places, Gary Talbot. Gary's a lovely guy, he's a model and he was discovered by Tyson Beckford, the international male model, mm. um, the supermodel guy and Gary was here and he told me he doesn't mind walking down the runway and having photographs taken of him and he said, but standing three feet in front of my camera and having his photograph taken so intimately close. Yeah. He said he felt very uncomfortable because he had Bell's palsy years ago and he still felt as if he had a deficit on one side of his face. Oh. But like, you want to see him. Yeah, yeah. I, I told him I'd take a hammer to my face to look <laughs> like you. And yeah. so we all had, like if Gary Talbot, and there's a, a story that Peter tells about a girl named Umpele Kelegwobe and she stood in front of his camera and in the same way that we do with everybody else, you shoot and you tether into the computer and you keep bringing them out and coaching them and teaching them about shapes and stuff like that. And she came out and she looked at the screen and he said, look at that, it's brilliant. And she shouted at her husband on the couch, honey, I hate my face. And the husband kind of laughed it off and went back to reading his newspaper, as mm -hmm. most men will. Um, but she was Miss Universe at the time. <laughs> so if Miss Universe and Gary Talbot have issues with how they look, yeah, yeah. what chance do the rest of us have, you know? Yeah. But it's... It is a very individual thing. Mm. So how people are responding to the images and how over time they react and change. But they do generally, we, we do at some stage just stop caring. Yeah. And we do get used to looking at ourselves or hearing our, ourselves. Um, and we become, it becomes habit. It, be, it becomes the kind of basal ganglia kind of area. Mm. And it's in the back of the brain and it's just something else that we, we, we deal with and we respond to. Um, but yeah, I think it's it's something that does kind of diminish over time. Cool. So you've talked a lot about neuroscience, 
prefrontal cortex, all of those sort of things that I'm very interested in. You have to have a massive interest in that area, right, to to probably for it to stick. So is that something that was always fascinating to you, the, the brain, the kind of psychology? Was it something that you were interested in growing up? Um, in secondary school, I was into biology. I liked biology. The teacher was pretty cool. Uh, Louis McGee, he was the president of the IRFU. I'm not sure if he still is. Um, and it was always something that interested me, human biology. Um, I was a member of St. John Ambulance for years, and I even went to the States and trained in pre-hospital medicine. Right. Um, so ambulance work, and I did a bit when I was here, there, and everywhere. And I, I was actually a member of Dublin Fire Brigade as well. Um, so that I always had that interest in people, um, and I always had an interest in how things work, how the human condition works, how people work. And so the, that interest was there from secondary school I suppose and it kind of grew and grew because of my kind of volunteering with St. John's and then into actually doing medical training and and cutting people out of cars and right. taking people out of ditches at 3 o'clock in the morning and Nice but but would, would, but through that studying and learning would, would the developing development or the interest of that uh, around the brain and that have become more apparent and Obviously, you were talking off of um, before the start, where you were studying finance originally. Yeah, uh, yeah. And it wasn't the creative side. Maybe that was uh, something you were going after. When did the the kind of switch happen? I don't know when. I always had an interest in people, and I worked in pubs for years as well. And I remember being behind the bar and people watching. I was always a people watcher, mm. and I think it might have come from there. I was. I was bullied in school. I was quite introverted. Um, and when I left school, I think it was from the pubs that and people watching and dealing with so many people so quickly and having a good time. It was like going to work was a social event, you know? Yeah. Um, and I think it was from that that I kind of developed into a little bit of a people watcher and started with a bit more interest in why people do things, how people do things. We were always sitting there watching first dates, you know. Yeah, yeah. You could pick out a first date in the pub from right, a mile right. away. Um, and whether it was going anywhere or not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I think it probably started there. And it's been an amalgamation of a lot of different things over the years that a lot of information's kind of come together. And um, then I started studying bits and pieces as well. Um, the cognitive behavioral therapy, mindfulness, um, I am. I'm still studying to. I'm about to qualify or get a, a certified as a master practitioner of mindfulness. Okay. Um. So these are just bits and pieces that obviously they kind of tie into what I'm doing with the the psychology based stuff. But I know I was terrified at the start to photograph people when I took a camera up for the first time, right? Because of that response that I hate my face. Jesus, look at the state of me. Mm. I was really, really terrified to photograph people and I felt as if it was my fault that they felt the way they felt. Mm. In a way it was because I wasn't doing anything to alleviate that. Mm. And I got into photographing, I think it was my niece or Vivian's niece or somebody's niece and a couple of kids down there, my mom, every Irish mother's the same. They volunteer you for everything. 
Yeah. Um, so I photographed a friend's wedding. Um, I photographed a few weddings then after that. And I realized that if we had a laugh at these people, the photographs are great. Mm. Um, and for years, then I shot things like fashion and magazine covers and the likes. And even that didn't really gel. I was breaking my neck working. And the same with weddings as well. You know, three weeks of work in a wedding and it didn't really sit. I loved the day and I loved taking the photographs and messing with the people. Yeah. The post process was killing me. It was the right. same as the finance thing, sitting in an office staring yeah. at squirrels out the window. Right. Um was it just because of the lack of creativity in that part or the lack of in the moment type stuff or I just what? don't think it suited my transient soul. You know, it, it's just I need stimulation. I think there's I don't know what's in me that I need that stimulation to be thinking and constantly on my toes mm. that's why i loved photographing weddings as well because it's 14 hours of hell like it, it, it's hard going yeah. and you're constantly thinking about what's coming next you're constantly watching the clock you're constantly kind of planning the next event as you run through the day and you kind of direct them through their day and have fun at the same time mm. so i think i need that stimulation um, to be constantly watching and constantly thinking and that's really where everything changed for me as far as taking photographs of people um, when I met Peter Hurley because we spoke about people feeling uncomfortable when he's talking about Umpele and that made sense mm. not just because it happened once for him because it was constantly happening for me right um, when I was in the early days, people would tell me, oh, I don't like my face. And I'd flip the photograph horizontally and give it back to them right. in Photoshop. And they that's much better because that's what they saw in the mirror. Right, right, right. Makes and sense, yeah. it was a validation of it wasn't me that's making people feel uncomfortable. Yeah. It's everybody holding the camera. And it's everybody feels uncomfortable looking at themselves in photographs. Mm. And then training with Peter, it made a lot more sense. And then through that it kind of expanded 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 and the the want for knowledge expanded um through meeting people like Anna Rowley who's a she's a corporate psychologist uh who worked with Peter and my interest just kind of exploded from there um and then late last year I made a decision that I was going to so I'd shot so much in the area of models and actors and makeup academies and that was where I saw the headshots and that's where I saw, you know, my business and the area to be in. And I was chasing that for so long and I just went, you know what, this is not, for me, it doesn't feel genuine. It feels disingenuous, it feels wrong mm. that I'm chasing business for the wrong reasons. Um, and then I just started to focus on why I wanted to shoot people's headshots was mm. to make them feel positive and to show them how they actually look and to take away that mystique or that kind of stress response of having their photographs taken. And since late last year, everything's exploded business-wise. Um, you know, I've shot hundreds of people so far this year. Mm. And I think it's a, an amalgamation of everything it's just me being super, super happy mm. at the moment with who I am, how I am and my whole condition because of 
that kind of learning process mm. um, and teaching. I remember Mike Kahn from Kahn's Cameras told me years ago that uh, you're great at teaching. You're great at teaching. You know, you're really good at teaching. Mm. I was down there with Cannon a good bit in Cons, and the place is so mad. Everybody kind of mucks in and does what they can. And you're trying to, you're down there teaching people stuff and showing people how to use bits and pieces of cameras that they don't use. And at the same time, you're kind of getting stuck in because the place is so rammed that you're selling stuff as well. And you're just doing everything, selling mm. batteries for Cons, even though you're there for Cannon. Um, and, Mike was, I think it was a way of him telling me that I was terrible at sales. <laughs> I, I really do. But uh, yeah, he kept saying, you're you're good at teaching. And that always stuck in my head then. Not that I don't get too many compliments, but it was just, it was something that I held on to. It was that he was telling me I'm decent at teaching. And it was after that then I started teaching for the Institute of Photography. Right. Um, it was just kind of a transition that happened. And yeah, from there. So now I'm constantly teaching. Mm. Because every per- every person who stands in front of the camera gets taught something. Yeah, I don't know how much they're going to hold on to, um, but I think that need for knowledge and need for mental stimulation has led to me wanting to pass it on as well. So I cool. Think. You talked about the turning point, I suppose, when you started to to work with um, Peter. Yeah. Subsequently, when you kind of you mentioned there, you found kind of what you're really happy with probably all the stuff that you've done in the past if you dotted it all together were kind of bringing you to maybe that point was there was there a shoot or two afterwards when you started to 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 the headshots on your own that you you really said that's kind of that's my best one or there's one or two that stand out that you felt this is is really something that's going somewhere now there's an image um and it happened before I trained with Peter. It happened on, I'll tell you exactly when it happened. It happened at 8.39 on the 21st of December, 2013. Right. I was photographing a wedding in the Radisson St. Helens Hotel in Stillorgan. And they didn't want photographs of a lot of stuff. They didn't want photographs of them getting ready or they didn't want any photographs of the speeches. And myself and the guy I was shooting the wedding with Dave, we're looking at each other saying, we're going to have to book this out somehow. You know, we're going to have to put images in here somewhere because we can't just have a couple of photographs of them outside the hotel and a few posed photographs with groups. So we decided we'd shoot all the guests and Dave had a massive softbox similar to the one that's over your shoulder. It was nearly seven foot wide. and I was shooting with a thing called a beauty dish, which is like a dinner plate that you stick a light through and it gives really harsh contrasty light as opposed to Dave shooting the girls with this kind of glowy light. Right. Um, so all the women were all lit, nice and soft and beautifully. So you're going to do headshots of all the guests, was it, or individually? Individual portraits of all the guests. Right, okay. And I was shooting with this dish that was stuck so close to their faces, like you could feel the heat off the light. Right. Um, and this guy came in and he looked like Frank Sinatra. It's the only way to ex- describe him. He was in his late 70s, early 80s and he was with his daughter and he came over and I took a photograph of him, which was a, not a bad photograph. Um, and his daughter said, can we stick his hat on? He looks like a gangster. <laughs> and we kind of laughed it off and I said, yeah, go on. So he went back out with his point in his hand and they came back in about five minutes later and he had this little fedora hat on him. 
And when he came over, I kind of tipped it a little bit to one side and I stood back in front of him, put him back under the light and I lifted the reflector a little bit to the left, just underneath him to get a little bit more light onto the opposite side of his face because I was only shooting with one light. And I lifted the camera and I was using the Canon 1DX. It's a heavy camera. And I had an 85mm 1.2 lens on the front of it and it's a massive amount of glass. Right. So altogether, it's... I, I, the guts are nearly three kilos in my hand. So you feel it after a whole day. But I lifted it up and when I looked through the viewfinder of the camera and hit the button to focus, I could feel the lens focus and I could hear the lens focus. And we have this thing that if if everything goes suddenly very dark, we remember the last thing that we saw. So the lights suddenly go out. You're going to remember the last thing you saw because your brain is waking up and saying, what happened there? Mm. Um. And it takes like it takes a mental picture. It takes a mental picture. So yeah. when I hit the button, the mirror lifts in the camera to expose the sensor, but it does it in a fraction of a second. So it's like a blink. Mm. So I remember the last thing that I've seen. Right. And I knew the last thing that I'd seen um, was fairly special. He just kind of laughed and he said, Look, can I go back to drinking my point? Like, are we done? <laughs> and I just lifted the camera and I said, we're done. Mm. And I looked over and I think Dave could see by the look on my face that something was out there happening. Mm. And he was, was it good? I said, it was good. You felt it. like I, yeah. I, Everything. It was just yeah. that connection that I had with him. And it was camera invisibility is something that I, I, I call it now. It's, it's where the camera disappears. We were having a laugh about him going back and drinking his point. Mm. He was talking to me rather than focusing on the camera. Yeah. So it was like the camera wasn't even there. And when I clicked it, it was just this image. That night I got home at about three o'clock in the morning and I was sitting in front of the computer and that image was chasing me the whole night. That's all I could think about. And the camera doesn't see what we see. It sees a two-dimensional version of and a kind of flatter color version of what we see. So I put it into the computer and I dickied it up a little bit just to bring it closer to what the human eye sees and I sent it to a guy named Doug and Cannon and I sent it to Dave McCain at the Institute of Photography I'm sure they were only delighted getting a 4 o'clock in the morning email hopefully they had no <laughs> notifications on or something no yeah. things um, and then a couple of days later I got messages from the likes of Gamut Magazine and Strobox Magazine and a few others that were they're all photographers, kind of online website, online magazines and websites. And it was featured on a number of them on Christmas Day a couple wow. of days later. And it was that image that's now huge on the wall at home. It's on the back of my laptop. It's on my phone. It's everywhere. Um, it's that image that I connected with and that really changed how I took photographs of people. And then I got to meet Peter in the summer and it completely validated everything that I had experienced in that kind of fraction of a second and everything that was following me from that image was validated by what Peter um, spoke about and how he spoke and how he spoke about the people who stood in front of his camera there's amazing photographers out there Mm. who don't make any money and then there's crap photographers who are out there making a fortune Mm. and I was I suppose somewhere in the middle I was doing okay. I was I was on a, a bit of a balance and I was doing okay money. Um 
and I was taking enough photographs and they were okay. Mm. They were interesting light. Um, I was teaching art nude workshops and stuff and it was it was qu- quite fun. But there was always something missing. And then I learned, and it was even four years on or three years on after training with Peter that it was only late last year that when I made that decision to step away from the social media area or the actors and models and look, I'll still shoot actors and models. They still book in and they come into the studio, but yep. I don't actively search for work in that area because it was the likes of pep talk. And it was the likes of even working with LinkedIn and working with teams in LinkedIn that I realized that doing this to help people feel more confident and happier in themselves is where I need to be. Not for a money thing. It was just, it made me happy. Sure. And it's once I've made myself happy, like I'm shooting for me rather than shooting for them. Yeah. And I make myself happy by taking photographs of people. Like I get to laugh for a living and I get to make other people laugh for a living. Mm. And I just take photographs of the evidence. That's all. Brilliant. You know? Yeah. Um, and that's, I suppose, the real turning point, even after all the time of training with Peter and everything. I think it was late last year that that main turning point happened. Peter steered me in the right direction. And shooting headshots was making me, you know, relatively happy. But it was late last year then with because of the likes of Pep Talk and because of working in places like LinkedIn and working with people like that who are actively trying to encourage the staff to be happy mm. and to be more balanced. Yeah. I think I found where I sat in all that mm. and it all kind of made sense. It was it was just a crossroads just yeah. many 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 things coming together at once and it just it just steered me in the right direction and mm. i think that's where that that kind of turning point really happened nice when you were talking about that guy in the at the wedding what came up for me was just something you had said earlier though was the fact that he probably didn't really have any self-conscious expectations of what he was going to look like he just wanted to get it done and go back to the to his point yeah probably helped you and take that picture because as you said with with everybody else coming in and they're scrunching their faces or they're squinting or squinching is it squinching yeah he He had a genuine facial expression Mm. that was it and he was looking and communicating with me and again i'm sure he's in a better mental state than somebody half his age because he's not really worried about what the rest of the world is looking at yeah um and it, it it's a it's quite an emotive photograph in that he kind of follows you around the room and people respond very well to the image. Um, and I've I've a lot of photographs. I've taken a lot of photographs over the years of people. I remember taking a photograph again before I trained with Peter. Of I was taking photographs of this young lad. I remember Bobby. He had just gotten the all clear from cancer. Right. I think he was six. And his grandfather was with them when they came in to to us to take the photographs. And Sheena, a model that I know from Assets, was there as well. We were shooting her headshots and a few other people. And she was standing there and the grandfather, we we take his picture. And we shot, it was after, I think it was the start of 2014, um, and we shot him in the exact same way that I'd shot Breen, the, the old guy with the hat. 
and he had dementia and you could see the kind of vacancy in his expression and you could see the vacancy in his eyes and one thing we communicate with that we don't know we communicate with generally is the viscosity of the human eye so babies always have really sparkly viscous eyes because they generally don't have any health issues right and as we get older or we're dehydrated or hungover the eyes become less viscous and less sparkly and he was in quite poor health so his eyes were almost glazed over they were quite kind of dead almost yeah um and you could see it within and when i took the picture i turned around and there was about four people standing behind me ashina included and they were all dumbfounded looking at the screen they were just Mm. it was it was a very emotional moment um and his but you could see he was a lovely man and there was a fragility there um, and that came across in the image and that was another big moment I suppose um, it's just one of those things one of those photographs that I'll always remember mm. one of those moments you kind of never forget um, so I don't even know where that point was going but it, it <laughs> no, it's, it, I think it's just back to the, the other the other standout faces and you know when there's there's less expectation in the person you're shooting maybe sometimes it can make it easier or yeah once it's, stand out. it's just you're photographing a person and you get to respond to to that person in the same way you would if they're standing in front of you mm. um to just yeah there's a lot of people i've photographed over the years i've shot some really cool people um chris Ref is a bond villain and mm. you know i've shot lots of really cool people and there's i suppose there's surprises from people as well Dermot and Dave have shot both of them from Today FM. The uh, friends of mine, I shot Dave loads of times, and I shot Dermot as well. Actually, here in the studio, and Dermot's lovely and he's quiet. But what people don't get is the fact that both of them are hugely intelligent. Mm. Like Dave speaks fluent Russian and everything, oh. you know. It's and Dermot's very much into mindfulness and mindset, and and just an overwhelmingly lovely guy the same as Dave they're just so you kind of get these little surprises when you're photographing somebody and you're quite intensely close to them mm. by shooting their headshots um, and you you learn a lot about people mm. individually and society as well I suppose on the whole because you're seeing how people are responding to society and how society is responding to people yeah. um, so there's there's a lot of people that I've shot that have had some mad connections you learn a lot from each one every face is different as you said earlier as you're going through the hundreds do you start to see kind of patterns or similarities even though everything is as you said different is there is there approaches you take then to say i've seen how light might reflect off this type of face or there's certain things that emerge that almost make a shoot that you're doing more efficient or do you follow any sort of process i don't really have a process i have when i'm setting up i have you know, my laptop is beside me. I'm tethered into the laptop and the camera is on eye level with the person that I'm shooting. So the lens is on eye level. I don't shoot above people. Um, I will talk to people beforehand and I'll try and establish what they want from their headshots, but it's usually the same thing. It's usually they want to look approachable. Mm. Um, if they're actors, they need a bit of variation. They need angry shots and happy shots and they need 
a lot of different things, but generally people just want to look like themselves. Mm. Um, there is different face shapes and again, it depends on, on the person. It will depend on the face. Um, every face is different. There's 7.4 billion people in the world and every one of us are different. Mm. You know, you could be twins and still look different. Mm-hmm. And it really does come down to the individual person and how the light sits across their face. Um, the shape of the cheekbones, the shape of the jaw. Um, so I don't really have an individual process that would could it be all do all for everybody. It It, it is quite different, mm. um, just depending on the actual person themselves and how I respond to them as well and how I deal with them. You can't have somebody really quiet come in here and me shouting and roaring and high-fiving them and being overly huge in my approach. Like Peter really likes to scream shebang and high-five people and that's Peter's thing. But like I remember I was in LinkedIn and this lady Safa came in. She's from Morocco and she came in wearing her hijab and she running around the room full of energy singing soul music and it was amazing she stood in front of the camera we had a great laugh I think I got her in six pictures wow. um, and we just kept shooting then for a few more minutes because we could yeah. and because it was good fun but the next person I'm not sure who came in after her but I know that they weren't on the same energy level coming in the door and the same level of excitement coming through the door to have their photographs taken right. Um, not everybody is as open as that so I've had people who come in and they just start crying in front of the camera mm. um, because of the stress wow. the expectation of a negative response and I can't be as happy and jumping around and messing and screaming at them as the same as I was with Safa mm. it's just it depends on the individual person so it's it's it is tailored to every single person who walks through the door or stands in front of the lights and the more they want to be pictured or photographed is there more of a chance of it coming out good better quicker in that as opposed to going in and almost against your will and is it just nearly impossible to get a good shot then it's never impossible yeah um some people there's four types of people there's people who we say there's people who own it they're just people like Barack Obama or Jill Scott you know they walk into a room and they're like the fellow who swallowed the moon there's just a glow off them and people take notice and they'll stand in front of the camera and you take pictures of them all day long and they just they're not phased either way mm. photographs are grand thanks very much they're great like thanks mm. and then there's people who pose and posers are generally they're hiding the, the low self-esteem they're pulling faces they're cocking the hip they're doing the duck lips and stuff like that and, you know they want to look a certain way yeah um in real life they're just hiding esteem problems right they're the person who will evangelize over certain things that they can do very well around the, the office or the job you know they're they're kind of sticking to the one thing they know they're good at because they don't want to stray off that point because if they do people are going to find out yeah that they have flaws and faults um there's diminishers as well are people who 
most people are diminishers. They pull back away from the camera. They rescind into themselves. The head goes back. The shoulders come forward. The eyes get really big. They don't really want to blink. They don't really want to be there. And in real life, they're the same person who will tell you when you offer them a new job or a new responsibility. Do you know who's really good at that? Yeah. yeah. They try and pass it off. And then we've avoiders. And avoiders are, I call them runners, because as soon as you point the camera in their direction, they're gone. And in the real world situation, they're a lot of them just they just don't try right um, a lot of people just don't try and there's huge statistics around kind of studies that have been done where you know those types of people will will be very kind of obvious um, but there's never an impossibility like there's never uh, you know it does depend on the person but there's never going to be an individual person who walks in and I can get them in three or four photographs and then the next person might take 25 photographs or 30 photographs to get but it's a staged learning process rather than just standing in front of a camera and pointing a button and clicking a button and hoping for whatever comes out it's it's teaching them about their posture and teaching them about how the face postures and the face moves and what the different muscles move and why they do that and and how that reflects and how that responds and what we actually see at the end. So that's why I take photographs and keep bringing them out and showing them the pictures on the screen. Some people will be quick. Some people take a lot longer. I've had a girl in here and she took two and a half hours. Right. Um, she kept telling me it was something to do with her hair, but it wasn't at all. It was the fact that she had put on weight and she felt uncomfortable. Mm. Um, so that did take two and a half hours to get her to where she needed to be. And it wasn't about just shooting headshots that I think look okay. It had to be that she felt happy mm. within herself leaving here. Um, luckily, I didn't have anybody booked in after. Right, right. <laughs> it was nearly 10 o'clock at night by the time we get out of the studio. Um, but, yeah, no, it, it, it is a very individual thing. So we're, we're up to about 50 plus minutes and uh, I'd like to maybe bring it towards just some... One percent better tips that listeners could uh, take on board themselves and see if there's ways that they can look better in pictures. I think a lot of the stuff we talked about has been fascinating around the psychology and get into the mindset of relaxing and not probably overthinking it. Is there any other kind of standard do's or don'ts that you would uh, share from your your experience? Having photographs taken is. It's the most unnatural thing in the whole world. Mm. The only way you're supposed to see images of yourself is in a rippled puddle of water outside a cave. You know, when you're when you're trying to hydrate yourself. And so understanding what you're actually looking at in a photograph is more important than anything else. So the main thing is to have good posture. Like we see photographs where there's a fella and he's six foot two and he's standing beside his girlfriend who's four foot nine and he lean over and over and over. For the likes of that, the photograph is probably being taken from the waist up anyway. So you can't see anything underneath it. So spread your legs. That mm. brings him down to her height. Right. Almost. Uh, like you don't have to be the exact same height. You can be taller. Yeah, yeah. Or just stand next to her. Right. If you are taller than her, you're taller than her. Mm. Um, facial expression is the big thing. So... Not you don't have to be super comfortable having your photograph taken. Mm. Um, and when you do have your photograph taken, everybody else is telling you, oh, it's a lovely photograph. You're, Jesus, I hate my face. Yeah. 
you know, so the big thing is to just accept how you look, mm. how we walk and the skin we wear is our decision. You know, why not embrace it? Because what other choice do we have? The features that we have are on loan from previous generations. Mm-hmm. We give them to the kids and to nieces and nephews and stuff. And we never see a problem with it in them. Yeah. So learning to be comfortable and understand how you look is you is important. Um, so for having photographs taken, it's to just stand tall, stick your head out a little bit towards the camera and let your nose come down towards the floor just a little bit. Right. Because when we engage with people, we bring our heads forward. Okay. We bring your head off slightly to the side as well. Right. Uh, you bring your head off. You're left-sided like me, so you bring your head off and you show off the left side of your face. Do so I? You do. Oh, so, um, understanding your side is a big one. Um, and sweet spots for light and how light interacts with your own face. Light is everywhere. It comes from above us, beside us, yeah. below us. It literally comes from everywhere. So understanding where light comes from. A lot of people take selfies, get near a window and make sure that the window's behind the camera okay. because it's lighting up your face properly. Yeah. Um, I know my headshot at the moment is quite dark on one side. <laughs> um, that was intentional to make a point. But the, yeah, it's understanding where light sits and how light works across your face. And so even if you're taking selfies, turn on the camera, look at it on the screen and move the camera around. Bring it up, bring it down, bring it left and bring it right. Um, don't do duck lips. Just, it looks like a cat's arse, so just don't do it. Was that like a Zoolander blue steel sort of thing? It's just a thing like, where girls okay. are going around sticking their lips out. Right, right, okay, yeah. And it's completely unnatural. Mm. Like, your face doesn't do that. You don't walk down the street looking like that. Puckered out sort of All thing. All puckered yeah. out, yeah. yeah. And I think because of the duck lip fad, people are making a fortune in Botox and fillers. You know, again, you never saw problems with those face, those lips when they kissed you goodnight as a child. So yeah. you don't need it. Like be completely natural. Learn to accept who you are and how you look. And so just, yeah, stand tall is really the big one. And taking selfies, I, I did a thing for, um, I think it was the Sun or News of the World or something. I wrote a, an article that Nicola Barden shared. Um, and it was it was on selfies. So don't take photographs from below eye level. Okay. Because that's all chins and snots. It's the dentist view and nobody needs to see it. Right. Um walking backwards, you know, don't take selfies anywhere that you're gonna hurt yourself. Be consciously aware of what's going on around you. Mm. And just generally having your photograph taken, it's if you're taking pictures of people, try to re- make them respond. You know, if you want people to laugh in photographs, never tell kids to smile. Right. Make them laugh. Yeah. Make a fart noise. Do something. Right. Because you're getting a genuine reactive expression. Mm. I'm kind of giving away the secrets. That's mm, what right. I do in the studio. little tips is good. I just make fart noises all day. <laughs> Whoopee cushions all around here, actually. Is there... Somebody said to me before, I don't know if the photographers are kind of like... And maybe that whole Amy Cuddy kind of power pose, fake it till you make it, but like stare down the camera and, you know, be telling yourself you're, you're, uh, you're awesome, you're in a great place sort of thing. Does that come across then or can that come across negatively it can come across negatively um like i was saying we read the eyebrows the lower eyelids and the corners of the mouth and the posture so if you've got big tall posture like not nice kind of carrying yourself well you're gonna look happy and confident 
if your facial expression is disingenuous and you don't have that Duchenne smile, that Duchenne marker, the squeezed lower eyelids, then and the smile is not there, it's just going to look wrong. Um, I do get the fake it till you make it thing. What you're doing is you're encouraging yourself to be positive around your image, mm-hmm. telling yourself, I love myself, mm. sticking your head out and making sure that you're in a good position. What you're doing is you're releasing serotonin and dopamine into your bloodstream. You're you're forcing yourself to to believe that you're happy and confident and comfortable in front of the camera. And So it can come across disingenuous if it's done wrong, but it's not something people should be afraid of, you know? Yeah. Have your photograph taken have it taken again and more and more and more mm. and just learn to see what you look like and learn what makes you you so if your personality's in the photograph like everybody loves candid photographs of themselves mm. and they're not looking at that one thing on their face that they don't like in mm. those candid photographs because they trust the expression and they're responding to that expression yeah um so it's just yeah just there is an element of if you force yourself to do it then it just becomes habit Mm. and it's it goes into the back of your brain and you're not thinking about the stress of having your photograph taken so faking it till you make it will kind of make you more comfortable in front of the camera mm. it's every actor and model is doing it constantly you know yeah they have their photographs taken so many times that they probably still don't like looking at them but you know they're not uncomfortable or they're not as uncomfortable as somebody who doesn't have their photograph taken a lot yeah um so yeah it, it can be an element of it, it can work very good uh, conscious of mindfulness you mentioned that it's something i always talk about on, on the show as well i've been doing it for a few years people are probably sick listening to me talking about it but I, I think it's just such a it has been such a transformative um practice for for me when when did you get into it and what what i suppose what brought you to it the it was there was a, a client in here who's now a friend and and smith she's a a wedding planner mm. and we were having these deep conversations as we were shooting our headshots um and a lot of people are into it but don't really realize they're into it mm-hmm. they're just into looking after themselves and she recommended i should read a book by joe dispenza called are you the placebo and again it was one of these moments where massive amounts of information that all made sense yeah um about the placebo effect and nocebo and how we train our brains and then she recommended another book by kamal rakavant called love yourself like your life depends on it Hmm. and i was reading that and i was thinking this is there's a lot in this um the interest was always there but I never really knew why I had the interest. Mm. You know, I, I never had a name for it. And then the whole mindfulness thing started and everybody was a bit lost with mindfulness. I think it was just, it was a buzzword mm-hmm. and it was being used and abused. People were setting up mindfulness Facebook pages and only yeah. sharing pictures of Buddhas and lotus flowers and yeah you know there was no real kind of substance behind it but i started looking a little bit more into it and just again late last year when i decided i was going to shift focus and do things that made me happy yeah and then while i was doing that 
I realized that what I was actually doing was being mindfully aware of how things made me feel. Mm-hmm. And if somebody cut me off in the car, like, what's the point in screaming and roaring at him? Mm-hmm. First of all, he probably can't hear me. Yeah. Second of all, he knows he did wrong. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's he feels bad about it already. Yeah, he already him. feels bad about it. Yeah. So there's no point in me feeling bad about it either. Um, just to go with him. So I kind of learned a little bit more about. I started to research a lot more, and then I did a kind of two week course that kind of extended out and extended out and extended out and now I've done a good few courses now on mindfulness mm. uh, the first one was only to kind of see what what it was about sure um, and to try and understand if there was an actual substance behind what I was doing and now I am almost a year into well I'm coming up to yeah but 10 months 9, 10 months okay. um, into studying mindfulness and learning to impart that knowledge on other people as well. Mm. Um, I'm not going to be sitting people down on a couch doing cognitive behavioral therapy and asking them questions about back when they are children <laughs> and stuff. But it, it's more to understand what I've been doing with people, I suppose, that I've been doing it anyway. Mm. Um, when I'm shooting people and when I'm talking to people and understanding how they feel and why they feel certain ways. and So if, if I have the knowledge to teach them why they're standing a certain way or why they are looking a certain way or why they feel a certain way about how they look um well then it, it definitely adds more weight to and more substance to the learning process for them um and i suppose making it a little bit more interesting for them coming mm-hmm. in having their photographs taken i'd like to see them go out with raised eyebrows and a smile on their face god jesus i can't believe that happened yeah, yeah, yeah. um so yeah it it, it was kind of Again, late last year that I made a decision that I was going to fill my already jam-packed brain with more information that I than I think I need um, to make myself more consciously aware of mm. my own kind of health and happiness and then the same to try and impart that knowledge on, on somebody else as well and other people. Yeah. Make the whole world happy. <laughs> it's interesting how you can interweave it though into your day job and kind of there's so many people running around, probably coming in here on a tight schedule themselves, running and racing, and they're just not aware uh, of all the stuff that's going around their head. So it's a, it's a valuable tool, I guess, in your in your line of work. Yeah, it's like that Chiaro Scuro thing that we were talking about earlier on. Um, this relationship between the darkness and the light, and there's so many things that go on behind the scenes in everybody's life. You know, we, my dad only retired from RTE and the amount of times as a child you hear him say things like smoke and mirrors and smoke and mirrors because, you know, and I remember the Late Late Toy Show when Santa Claus was in the in the car that they lowered down from the ceiling or the sled at the start and my dad was working in the Floy's department, the Floy Master, like they designed how the sets move in and out and that was all top secret and, you know, but the plans were sitting on our kitchen table for months. And we are only talking about this yesterday. And the that whole sense of chiaroscuro, the, the relationship between what is put out there for us to see and what actually goes on in the background is something that's hugely prevalent because I talk a lot about 
social media and Facebook and Instagram and you know everybody's posting or bloggers and a lot there's a lot of stuff going on with bloggers at the moment where it's people calling them out for the stuff that's going on like their their kind of behavior or lapses in in judgment um people posting the cup of coffee they have or the cakes and the other stuff that's going on in their lives but you don't see all we're looking at is we're looking at the positives and it's like that chiaroscuro you're looking at that brightness you know that's it's what we see on tv you know it's all we saw was santa claus being lowered out of the ceiling you don't see the months and months of work that goes on behind it or whatever is actually happening behind what you're being shown all we see is the shiny stuff on the picture box mm-hmm. and it's the same when we look at instagram or facebook what we're actually seeing is highlights of information things mm-hmm. that people want us to see sure we don't see the stuff that goes on behind you know they could be having the worst day of their life taking a picture of that cake and the coffee they could have walked in dog crap before they walked into the shop yeah. you know you know they could have fallen down a hole and ripped their tights you know you don't know what went on or you don't know what's going on in their life yeah they could be massively depressed mm-hmm. but they're just posting positives and it's a very dangerous society in that when we look at instagram and facebook what we're doing is we're sensationalizing what we see we're making it a whole lot bigger than it actually is mm-hmm. um and as you get up in your put your socks on and you put your shoes on you get in the car and you go to work you know we have this sense of who we are and if we don't have four holidays a year the best coffee in dublin every single day cakes and all the amazing stuff that we see on instagram we feel like we're less than what we see as society and we begin to feel that that instagram life is what society expects from us Mm. So it's that gap, again, between how we see ourselves and what we think the rest of the world is expecting from us. Mm. So it can negatively impact on us. And I think it's important to learn to find who you are and be happy and confident, comfortable in who you are, Mm. um, rather than what you think the rest of the world is expecting you to be or who the rest of the world is expecting you to be. So, like I say, 7.4 billion people in the world and every single one of us are different. Yeah. You could be a twin and still completely different than the other person. Mm-hmm. Even though you might look similar, you could be totally different, you know, mm-hmm. totally different personality, interests, the whole lot. So I think it was Oscar Wilde who said, be yourself, everybody else is taken. <laughs> yeah. And like we teach kids all the time that it's what's on the inside that counts. Mm. Um, And even there's a Dr. Seuss quote, Today, you are you. That is truer than true. There's no one alive who is youer than you. And we teach this to children and forget that it applies to us too. Yeah. That's why it says substance superfi- substance over superficial on my back. You know, it's a, yeah. it's more about who's on the inside rather yeah. than what's on the outside. Because if you're happy and confident and comfortable on the inside, you're going to be happy and confident and comfortable on the outside too. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the point of we're very, we can be very good teachers, but a lot of the stuff we're teaching is not stuff we're probably living by our, ourselves in lots of ways you know and that's where my kind of focus on the mindfulness stuff i suppose it did come from that i suppose learning to to be happy and confident and comfortable within myself and mm. understand what it is that makes me me and just be happy with that mm. because i have a great life yeah you know i have a family like a loving family i 
have friends. I have many friends from many walks of life. You know, I'm very fortunate in who I am. Sorry, there's loads of noise going on around the place. It's a very busy place. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I, I'm I'm very happy and fortunate in who I am and how I am. And I think we all are if we learn to look at it the right way. Yeah. I was only talking about needs and wants. You might say you need a million euro. You don't really need a million euro. Mm-hmm. You know, your bills are covered probably by a thousand euro. Yeah. So, you know, we don't need the things that we think we need because we're being sold yeah. again on social media, advertising, you know, this kind of Diet Coke lifestyle where you stand in the middle of a park, mm. pour Diet Coke all over yourself with no shirt on you know everybody yeah. you think that's what happiness and sexiness and attractiveness looks like mm. but I've tried it and the park rangers just removed me <laughs> I won't see you up in uh, St Stephen's Green in a couple of hours I'm so St Stephen's Green <laughs> I think though what is striking is that you know you're in that happy place you're very comfortable in who you are right now the mindfulness I think probably has a, had a, a big helping hand in that not everybody listening to this are probably there but that doesn't mean they can't get there and certainly it's there for them if they if they kind of want to to try and look at certain options to yeah, get there they can study mindfulness or just do little things take a few minutes like you don't have to sit and meditate you know for 10 minutes a day and meditation is not mindfulness mm-hmm. meditation is taking a couple of minutes to yourself i don't know who it was, but I heard somebody talking about their own meditations and how they meditate. And this guy said that when he goes to the hand dryer in the bathroom. That's me. That was you. I wrote the article on that. That's what it was. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The I knew one it. minute hand dryer. Yeah, the yeah, one yeah. minute meditation. There you go. See, that <laughs> information can, is in there somewhere. It'll, it'll sound a bit too planted now that you said that, so I'll have to probably cut that out. I'm joking. Oh, yeah. But um, yeah, the one minute meditations, you know, at yeah. the hand dryer. It just means that you actually wash your hands when you go to the toilet mm-hmm. um but it's there are so many different things that we can do in order to be more mindful and happier like look around you like if, if your kids are running around the place and you're getting all pissed off because they're screaming and roaring mm. like just look at them again and laugh because essentially that's what kids do mm-hmm. kids run around and they laugh mm-hmm. I tell a story about photographing communions. I used to do them years ago and I photographed a communion for a traveler family and there was eight kids and the eldest fellow was making his communion. And I hated doing family stuff because it was parents slapping the back of the child's head and telling them, look happy, mm. you know, be happier. And that's fake. Yeah, It's completely fake. And this minivan pulled up in the war memorial gardens in Island bridge and they opened the doors and the kids went everywhere they were like marbles spilling out of a jar they were just everywhere but they were running around and they were just them mm. and the parents let them mm. they were just look they are who they are it, yeah. and the kids kind of hung around with each other every time i wanted to take photographs of your man who made his communion the other kids were climbing all over him and they were all over the place and the photographs are spectacular mm. because it's happy kids doing happy kids stuff yeah Obviously, you need to put the reins on them a little bit in real life, you know, to make them eat their dinner and do the things that they're supposed to do. But just because you're trying to watch Coronation Street and they're screaming and they're laughing and they're climbing on each other or fighting over the iPad, it's kids being kids, you know. Mm. 
and I think we've lost a run of ourselves in a lot of ways that we're so engrossed in things that don't matter because the world is telling us it matters mm-hmm. rather than looking at the little positive things that we do have and taking a moment for yourself just to remind yourself that, you know, I am lucky. Mm-hmm. You know, I have family, I have friends and even though we might be people, there's so many people going around in negative equity and people, you know, the cars that are breaking down and you've stuff going on and but none of that really, really matters. Mm-hmm. Like what matters is the f- is is the things that we do have and learning to see that is is a big, big change. Like we all get kind of clouded. I know I was for a long time. Mm-hmm. And you know, I'm in a very happy place at the moment because I'm able to appreciate I suppose that is the the main thing is, is gratitude. Yeah. Learning to be like be thankful. Thank yourself for the things that you've provided for yourself and thank everybody around you for the things they've given you. Mm-hmm. Um it's little things. The tiniest of little things. I sent a I know they often go to McDonald's for my breakfast, but I went to McDonald's this morning on the way mm, for a coffee, yeah, and um treated myself to a bacon and egg McMuffin as well. Mm-hmm. And the guy behind the counter made eye contact with me. And he called me sore and I laughed. I said, I don't very I don't get called sore very often. Um, and the lady after me called Madam. And he was nice and he made eye contact and he said, you know, have a good day. And I said, you too. Mm. Um, and it was the fact that he made such a strong connection, eye contact with everybody that he served. And I watched him mm. while my stuff was being prepared. And he served two or three more people after me and the same thing with everybody. So I sent an email to McDonald's this morning just cool. saying, look, fair play to him, yo. Nice. He engaged with everybody and he was he was kind and he was nice. We get up in the morning and nine to fivers, I call them great people in the morning and the afternoon because they arrive into work in their droves, thousands of them going across the Samuel Becker Bridge or on buses and everybody's stuck into their phones and nobody's actually making eye contact or connecting with anybody else. Mm-hmm. Surrounded by millions of people and isolated at the same time. And it's just this grey mass that moves, lit by phone screens. Mm -hmm. And we've lost connection. And we're not supposed to lose connection. Mm -hmm. We're we're not supposed to be trapped into little boxes. We're supposed to be free in, you know, have as much space around us and air in our lungs. And we're supposed to connect with other people and not be isolated. And it was important for me that, he got that little bit of a sense of gratitude from mm. his superiors because that stuff goes unnoticed. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, I'd like it if somebody took something from that. Like I was talking, I was in Northern Trust in the Wealth Management Agency last week in Limerick and I was talking to them and I was talking about the very same thing and I got a LinkedIn connection from one of the guys that evening after I had gotten home and he said, after you spoke about that, he said, I went through the toll bridge on the way home rather than putting the coins in the bucket. And I handed it to the guy mm. and I said, thanks. And I said, I hope you have a nice evening. Nice. And that was a nice message to get. Mm. Um, so there are little things like that. Actually physically asking people, how are you? Mm-hmm. Smiling at people, making eye contact with somebody on a bus. Um, you just don't hold eye contact for too long. <laughs> smiling at somebody in the yeah, lift yeah, yeah. you don't have to talk to everybody in the lift or hand them name badges just yeah. wear yours upside down um but uh you know it's making contact with people and not being isolated that's one of the big reasons that i'm 
involved and I run the LinkedIn local in right. Dublin yeah. because there are so many people who communicate through screens or they communicate through email and they never stand face to face and make eye contact. Mm. And we might think we're connected to people because we're connected to them on social media and stuff, but we're really not. Sure. So standing face to face with somebody and having an actual conversation with somebody makes a massive, massive difference. Yeah, it's kind of reverse engineering the concept of these kind of LinkedIn social platforms. You're actually meeting the people rather than virtually connecting over online, you know? Yeah, and the big thing with it as well is to not be there to talk about what you do for a living mm, and to try and sell yourself and your business. It's to actually stand in front of somebody and say, what do you do? in the hours outside those eight hours a day yeah what are you into what do you do um i shot a guy here in the studio last week remy remy daniel he's a videographer lovely guy i met him at linkedin local he shot a video for the first one um as a courtesy to yanetta that i run linkedin local with and as just a kind of payback this is actually the second linkedin local i actually got to speak to him and he was telling me about his, like he lives in Fairview, he likes to run. We were joking about the new Clontarf baths after they've redone the baths, right. the, the old swimming baths, and you can't actually swim in it. So we had a bit of a laugh. Um, but we got into a big conversation and just around who we were, you know, normal conversation. Mm-hmm. Whereas a lot of the time you go to these things and it's somebody trying to figure out how you can help them in their business and you're trying to figure out how they can help you in yours and kind of wheeling and dealing and negotiating terms. So it's nice to go to something where it's just people having a chat. Like obviously you're going to mention what you do or sure. people are going to know what you do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's just nice to stand in front of somebody and shake their hand and make eye contact with them. Nice. Um, like myself and yourself, you know, yeah. communicated okay. through social media a few times and, yeah. and now we're physically sitting in the studio and yeah. having a chat, you know, oh, and it's, it's nice to have a physical connection with somebody and make that that connection, you know. No, absolutely, and I'm delighted we were able to uh, to do it as well, even though it probably took longer than we had planned to get here. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I'm going to wrap it because I think we've got a lot of good stuff in there, but there's a couple of quick ones I want to ask before you go. One is this interesting unknown fact or little known fact that I read on your website or somewhere about you, something to do with Michael Jackson in 1992? Yeah, yeah. Um, I'd like to know more about this. I was in fourth class, and she's now the principal of, of St. Mary. It's actually St. Christopher's now. They've changed the name of the school. Um, in Haddington Road, Maeve Brew was my teacher, and I was always into music. I played the clarinet, the saxophone, and I played the tin whistle and everything else that was going. Um, my family were got me into the Dublin concert band and the Michael Jackson was going to be playing in Lansdowne Road and had reached out to the nearest schools which were the boys and girls schools in Haddington Road for Heal the World Uh, Mm. they wanted kids to walk across the stage and sing a song so that was it yeah so they'd asked for people and somebody from each class was going to be put forward and Miss Brew I remember her saying, John never gets to do anything. Do you want to do it? And I said, yeah, yeah. She said, you're really into music as well. Grand. So I had to go and learn the words to heal the world. Uh, the chorus. And I remember being in the... And he was the principal at the time. 
um, in his class. He was teaching sixth class and we had to all go down there and learn the words to the song and sing it over and over and over again. And we were supposed to meet Michael Jackson, get some free T-shirts and CDs and be brought to um, McDonald's. Right. With him, but something happened. With him? Yeah, something happened and we never got to meet him. Right. Um, But yeah, they brought us into Lansdowne Road and I remember sitting beside a security guard just at the bottom of one of the stands looking up at the stage while the concert was going on and then when it was our time they brought us around the back and brought us out onto the stage and they yeah they led us out onto the stage for Heal the World and we walked across the stage singing with no microphones so nobody could hear us anyway <laughs> it didn't really matter um, and we just walked straight across the stage all holding hands um, there was a girl in the and I was in fourth class it was probably one of my first crushes I remember <laughs> having this crush on this girl um, and I got to hold her hand before we were going out on the stage right. and then the dancer came and stood in the middle and oh split Lord. us up Splitzy. so it was child adult child adult <laughs> but I thought I was going to get to hold your one's hand going across the stage yeah no it was uh, it, it's the funny little things that you remember cool any video footage or photog- picture, pictorial evidence of it no no I did look a couple of times I googled it a few times maybe anybody listening who is is good at YouTube um I did look. I have. I've kind of googled it a bit mm. um, over the years and bits and pieces just to see if anything did show up. But no, I've no. My mom has the t-shirt we got right, right. somewhere. An adult's t-shirt for a somebody somewhere might have a, have something to yeah, share. Yeah. But you never know. Nineteen ninety-two in Lansdowne Road. Yeah, it was nineteen ninety-two and the Dangerous World Tour. Okay. Um, for heal the world. Yeah, it was in. That's my little piece of magic. You never know what might come out of it. Um, John, look, that was brilliant. I really enjoyed it. We went through a good lot of stuff there, and I'm, I I really enjoy going down the, the kind of mindfulness route, see how it all weaves together. It seems like you're in a really happy place. Long may I hope it continues for you. Uh, for people listening in that don't know you already, how could they get in touch? How could they find out more? They can find out more on johnmarieheadshots.com. I am on social media. All my links are there actually on the website. Uh, there's links to pretty much everything there. Um, I'm on LinkedIn. I am on in- Instagram as John Marie Headshots. I'm on Twitter as at JM Photo Dub or John Marie Headshots. Um, and I'm on Facebook as well. So yeah, just JohnMarieHeadshots.com and all the links are there. And there's plenty of stuff on the blog and my LinkedIn page gets a lot more than the blog does, I suppose. Yeah. Um, so yeah, everybody can connect in through JohnMarieHeadshots.com. Brilliant. Thanks so much, John, for that. Appreciate it. Enjoyed uh, listening to the journey. So, how did you find it? A good show? Hopefully. Do take a second or two to let me know. And before you do, dive off just a couple of quick call-outs. The new podcast, the 864, 15 minutes long, in fact, 864 seconds is the aspiration, is now out and ready for listening. Check it out on the site. Go to the podcast page. There's a link for 864 there. Or go on to Apple Podcasts and subscribe. That would be awesome. The 864 is all you have to search for. And it's in all other podcast platforms that you can think of or should be. So, have a listen. Every week I release a One Minute Monday video Clip, which is also a tip to hopefully make you 1% better. Check that out. It's on the website on the video page. Did you also know that only about 1% 
of listeners to podcasts, not just my own, but all, leave a rating, leave a review, get in touch or give feedback. And I would love if we could book that trend and put it to 2% for this one. So please do take the time to give me a bit of feedback, give me some ideas about future guests or whatever the hell comes into mind. Just get in touch or rate or review the podcast on Apple. That helps. I'm available at all of the social platforms, pretty much all, at Rob of the Green. That's either with or without the at sign, but you'll find it under that moniker. So hopefully I'll hear from you there. Last couple of quick ones, support. So I do offer some pro bono coaching. Get onto the website, the support page to get in touch few hours a month happy to do that and if you would like to support the podcast that would be awesome you can do so through patreon and also through purchasing books through the book page on the website that goes through amazon and we get a little percentage i'm not even sure what but it's something and finally just to say thanks for taking the time to listen to the podcast i know there's lots of other shows out there it means a lot that you're checking this one out so have a great rest of day week month year whatever it may be and hopefully you're getting one percent better as a result of these shows take care and good luck